I always encourage people to go serve on juries. You know, like you get that jury duty notice in the mail, you're like, damn, I'm so busy. I, I, I don't have time for this. I want to do it, but you got to go and you got to listen to the Wrongful Conviction podcast so you can make a more educated decision when you're holding somebody's life in your hands, which you very well might be if you go serve on a jury. And you don't just fall into the trap of believing what it is that the people that we grow up believing we should trust, believing that they're being honest, believing that they're competent, believing that the scales of justice are actually even, right? We've all seen the lady justice, right? With the blindfold on and the scales. It ain't like that. What's up, everyone? Welcome to The Hardest Step, a podcast from The Lost Debate. And this is your boy, Cos Marte, and I'm joined with my little brother here, Christopher Marte. Well, I'm a little bit more than Costa's younger brother. I'm also a New York City council member representing my community in Lower Manhattan. As some of you may know, I'm the founder and CEO of Combody, a nonstop prison-style bootcamp where we proudly hire formerly incarcerated individuals as our instructors. We're hosting this podcast because we strongly believe in the power of second chances and redemption. And that's a mission that we share with our next guest, music executive Jason Flub. He's one of the biggest names in the record label industry, having launched acts such as Katy Perry, Sugar Ray, and Matchbox 20. But today we're gonna focus on a different aspect of his life. Flom is also an unstoppable advocate for criminal justice reform. He's a founding member of the Innocence Project and is personally involved in many criminal defense organizations. On top of that, he's gotten dozens of clemencies including 17 that were granted under President Clinton. As part of his work as an activist, Jason is also the host of a hit podcast, Wrongful Conviction, which features interviews from people who have spent decades behind bars for crimes they didn't commit. Jason, thank you for your tireless effort and welcome to the podcast. Can you tell us what was the turning point in your life that made you empathetic in the space, in the criminal justice work that you're doing now? I heard you dabble with some drugs back in the day as a kid. What was that point that made you change your perception and made you get involved in the work that you're doing right now? It was actually, uh, I had my eureka moment when I read an article in the New York Post of all places, which is not a paper that I would normally read. I don't think anybody should normally read it, but that's beside the point. Um, <laughs> the, you know, it was a day. That was back in the day, right? This was a long time ago. This is 93, okay? So 1993, I pick up the post because the New York Times was sold out. And I was getting in a taxi. I wanted something to read. And this article hit me like a ton of bricks. I'll tell you exactly what it said on the headline because I saved the picture of the article. In a nutshell, it was an article about a kid named Stephen Lennon who was serving 15 years to life for a nonviolent first offense cocaine possession charge. The headline was, here's the article. You could see it on the thing here, Ferraro's plea for cocaine kid. So Geraldine Ferraro, for a lot of your audience members who are too young to remember this, she was the first woman ever to receive the nomination to be vice president of the United States from a major political party. And her own son had had trouble with drugs, uh, had gotten in trouble with drugs, but of course he was sentenced to house arrest because, you know, it affects different people differently, these laws, right? So she had uh, gotten interested in this case when the mother of this young man named Stephen Lennon had reached out to her. And Stephen was 32 years old, same age as I was at the time. He had been in prison for eight years. I had been sober for almost eight years. And 
he was serving 15 to life for a nonviolent first offense cocaine possession charge. I'm sure you met some of those guys when you were in there. And I just think everything I thought I knew about justice and fairness and equity just went out the window as soon as I read about this. I was like, wait, 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 they, they, he's what? Like, I'm like, let me read that again. How, I didn't know anything about mandatory sentences or drug laws or anything, but I knew it could have been me because I was in the wrong place at the wrong time so many times. And so I just felt I had to get involved. I had to do something. So I got involved. And this is where my worlds collided. I make a long story short as I can, but I only knew one criminal defense lawyer at the time. It was a guy named Bob Kalina because he represented two of my artists, Skid Row and Stone Temple Pilots, and they were getting arrested like monthly. So I had them on speed dial. I got him to take the case pro bono. He said it was hopeless, but six months later, we ended up in a courtroom in Malone, New York, up by the Canadian border. I mean, this is so long ago, I still had a mullet. You know, and I was wearing purple Doc Martens and I didn't know anything about what was going on. But I knew I was sitting there holding the kid's mother's hand when they brought him in in shackles. And you familiar with that again, right? Shackles with his legs chained together and his hands chained to his waist. I'm like, this is a nonviolent first offender. What are you guys doing? And uh, the judge ruled in our favor, banged that gavel down and sent the kid home. And I was like, holy shit, I have a superpower. I didn't know I have a superpower. I got to use this. And I was like, it was the best feeling I could imagine. Um, ever having, I, you know, I mean, that and the joy I get from my kids are the best things I know. And so I've never stopped ever since then. I also read that you spoke to Bill Clinton at one point and you changed the seating arrangements at dinner with him. Does the secret service like tackle you or something? <laughs> like, how was that? That was crazy. Yeah. It's one of my, uh, proudest accomplishments for sure. I was very lucky to get the opportunity to have dinner with President Clinton at the same table as him. You know how it works. I mean, I made a big donation to Al Gore because I was so scared of, of Bush and I knew how bad he would be. And so as a result of that donation, I got invited to this uh, this dinner. You know, I did made the donation so I could get to the dinner because I wanted to talk to the president. Right. But I also wanted to donate to Gore. So it was a no brainer. And when I made the donation, I called the guy whose house the dinner was going to be at. And I said, I want to sit next to him. I got stuff to talk to him about. And he goes, no, you can't sit next to him. It's a boy girl seating arrangement. I said, well, he goes, you want to sit across from him? And I was like, well, is the table round or oval? Because I'm not trying to sit across a round table from the guy. You know what I mean? And he was like, no, it's oval. I was like, good, we're good. Let's go. So I got the opportunity to, to be at his table at an apartment in Manhattan. And when I got there, the first thing I did was check the place cards, you know, and I was like, mm, nope, I'm not across from him. So I went to the dude and I was like, yo, my check's going to bounce. This is not the way we, we this is he's like, no, 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 we'll fix it. We'll fix it. So I don't know that I necessarily moved the place cards. It's a better story if I did it. But I think I maybe I got them to do it. Um, otherwise, I probably would have been tackled. And, uh, you know, it might be having a different conversation now about you trying to get me out. I don't know. But anyway, but yeah, it was a result of that dinner without rambling on too long. But as a result of a conversation, I was able to engage the president in at that dinner and then an incredible amount of follow up. Um, I was able to convince him or help convince him to grant clemency to 17 people who combined were serving over. They had over 500 years of mandatory prison time left to go. So, and they were all nonviolent first-time drug offenders. So, you know, I'm still in touch with some of them. It's it's extraordinary. I mean, I'm really, 
and I've heard some of the stories and some of them have even gotten to meet and thank uh, President Clinton. Uh, so, you know, that was an amazing, amazing uh, thing to be a part of. So, Jason, you're known for bringing politicians, presidents, celebrities like Rihanna to help you in your mission. How do you do it? What's the strategy? I've been able to keep this mission front and center by virtue of the fact that I have had the opportunity to bring it to the attention of some important, popular and powerful people. And um, I'm going to continue to do that for as long as I'm alive because it's my calling. I'm not a religious guy, but it's my calling. Do you hate the bullies, man? Because I, I feel like I was bullied in the system. You know, at a very young age, I was stopped probably over 200 times in my life just to literally walk into the bodega to get a lollipop, man. And, and I just hate the fact that the bully was the system. You know, do you hate the bullyish system that we're living in right now? Absolutely. You're, you're, you're right on the money there, Koss. I mean, I, I have a, a, just a visceral reaction to bullying. And I think that the ultimate form of it is when the government uses its almost infinite power to push around and deprive civil rights, uh, the civil rights of people who are not in a position to be able to defend themselves. And we see it every day. It's numbing, right? I mean, George Floyd is, is one extreme example of it, but it's not a unique example in any way. The only unique thing about it is that he was captured on video. I mean, other than that, it goes on at every level of our system. And, you know, for me, what's become the center point or the, you know, the, yeah, whatever, the center of, I'm not, not thinking the right word of my work has been the innocence work, right? Because to me, that that takes on, I mean, look, I don't think anyone should ever go to prison for drugs. I think drugs should all be legal. It's crazy how selective we are in which drugs are legal and who uses which kind of drugs has a lot to do with that. But the idea that there are such a there, there are such huge numbers of people in prison in America and around the world, but more so in America, for crimes they had nothing to do with. That messes up my head. I think it's, for many people, their most visceral fear is being accused of and, and convicted of and sent to prison for life or he's sentenced to death for a crime you didn't have anything to do with. And it happens every day in courtrooms all over this country. And you must get thousands of letters from people who have been wrongfully convicted. How do you choose? How do you prioritize one person over another? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, it's interesting how the skills that I've developed over the years in discovering talent in the music industry I'm not going to compare those two because one is a uh, life and death situation and the other one is creative decision and it can have profound you know, impact, but nothing like actually freeing somebody from a sentence that for a crime they didn't commit. But there is some connectivity there, right? There's some, it comes down to instincts at the end of the day, both of them do, because I'm not a lawyer. Everybody thinks I am, but I'm not not even a college graduate, but I'm a very effective advocate and I care a lot. And I know how to, in some cases, connect the dots. And whether that means trying to appeal to a governor or a president, or in some cases, even a DA, if they'll listen, or a pro bono law firm or an innocence organization. 
and I wish I could do it more, but I'm just one person. I do have a small organization and we're, you know, team, I should say a small team. And, and we're, you know, we're looking to grow that team in ways that that's probably subject for another podcast. But, you know, some cases they just jump out and sometimes it's just sometimes I have the bandwidth and sometimes I don't. I do get a lot of letters. I wouldn't say thousands, but I get a lot of letters. I have people that are trained to to read through those letters and help me understand you know, what's beneath the surface there. Um, and sometimes I'm able to help. And of course, that's where the podcast comes in. You know, with, with the podcast, the Wrongful Conviction podcast, I'm able to help expose this sordid underbelly of our system to a lot of people at once. Instead of out being out there talking about it one-on-one, I can speak to 100,000 or more people per episode. And it's actually had a really profound impact in ways I hoped for, but other ways I couldn't have even imagined. I mean, you made Joe Rogan cry. That was crazy. How, how was that feeling? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was amazing. I didn't, um, yeah, I had the very, I had the privilege of being on Joe Rogan. Thanks to my friend, Josh Dubin, who was, um, you know, an extraordinary guy. He's a death penalty lawyer. He's an, he's an ambassador to the innocence project. He's a, jury consultant, a civil rights lawyer. He also manages uh, some of the biggest boxers in the world. So he and Joe got to know each other because of that, that shared passion. And and he was invited on the show and he invited me to go with him. And we, we did make Joe cry. Um, and it was a, it was a powerful experience being on there. And it really, it's had an amazing impact. You know, even now there's a guy named uh, Jordan Grotzinger who reached out to me because he heard me on Rogan. And he asked if, uh, he could bring his law firm in on a case that, you know, take a case pro bono. And they did that. And he's with one of the most powerful law firms in the country, Greenberg Traurig. And they've taken on, you know, we went through and we tried to analyze, going back to your question, we analyzed which case we thought they could have the biggest impact on. We settled on the case of a man named Pierre Rushing, uh, who's in prison in California for a crime he had nothing to do with. It's an Oakland case. And uh, I think, honestly, knock wood, um, I'm going to knock some wood right now. I think they're going to win. I think I really do. I believe that they have uncovered the smoking gun, so to speak. And I believe we're going to bring Pierre home. He's been in for over a decade, but he's I think he's got a 50 year sentence. You can hear his story on my podcast. If you just Google wrongful conviction podcast, Pierre rushing, just like it sounds. It's a crazy story. And, you know, they're all crazy. But in this case, that's the power of the of, that's why I'm so glad to be on here with you guys now, because you never know who's listening and how it's going to touch them and how it's going to make them feel and how it's going to make them want to react and, and act and react. And, uh, you know, I, I just want to say one other thing. I know I'm on a little rant here, but I always encourage people to go serve on juries. You know, like you get that jury duty notice in the mail. You're like, damn, I'm so busy. I, I, I don't have time for this. I want to do it, but you got to go and you got to listen to the Wrongful Conviction podcast so you can make a more educated decision when you're holding somebody's life in your hands, which you very well might be if you go serve on a jury. And you don't just fall into the trap of believing what it is that the people that we grow up believing we should trust believing that they're being honest, believing that they're competent, believing that the scales of justice are actually even, right? We've all seen the lady justice, right? With the blindfold on and the scales. It ain't like that. And I'm trying to just, that goes back to the bullying thing, right? I'm trying to even that out a little bit. And so 
we know that the podcast has led to quite a few people walking, literally walking out the doors of prison. Lamont McIntyre. Uh, I'm not going to say it's the only thing, but it was cited as a key factor in in the freedom of Vincent Simmons, Ronnie Long, and others. And we want to continue to shine a light, Daniel Villegas, on on these cases and. And, and the most important and the best ones are the ones we'll never hear about where somebody maybe today is serving on a jury somewhere in America and is going in that jury room and saying, nope, I'm not falling for this because I heard a similar story or many similar stories on the Wrongful Conviction podcast. And I'm not just going to go along. I'm not just going to go along with the crowd. I'm not just going to, you know, succumb to the pressure. I'm going to stand up for what's right. And if we do that, then I'm going to sleep well at night. Yeah. So what do you do after they get out? I remember when Koss got out his final time, he didn't even know what a cell phone was. He was near the Buffalo airport and he approached a woman, asked her where was the nearest payphone, And she looked at him and said that you can, you can use my cell phone. Koss looked down at it and didn't know how to use it. So what do you do to help people get caught up to the modern day? I'm glad you asked. It's a super important topic, and it's near, very near and dear to me. I know what we should be doing as a society, which is that we should be building ramps for people when they come out of that door, those gates, the prison. We should be creating opportunities for them. And we should be, um, I'm not saying they have to jump to the front of a line ahead of somebody else who's, you know, didn't get themselves in trouble. But I'm saying we should be providing every opportunity we can for them to get signed up for Medicare and to get signed up for job training and to get access to resources that can help them with anything from housing to family services and things like that. I'm working on a project that's going to be, a, a, you know, I hope a game changer in this area, which I think we're going to launch in August. But I've been working on this for quite some time. You know, instead of building ramps, we put up walls, right? We put up walls and then we, we, try to, we try to make it as difficult as possible for people to get anywhere. They're barred from so many things. There's so many probation violations. There's thousands of things you can go back to prison for. Drug testing, all this other stuff, associating with another felon. Like, but that, those are not even the worst, like crazy stuff. And, you know, Meek Mill talked about it when he was on my podcast, how he wasn't allowed to cross. He lives on the border of Philadelphia and New Jersey. He wasn't allowed to drive to New Jersey to pick up his son from school unless he called his probation officer. He would have gotten arrested, could have gotten arrested and sent back to jail for that. And, of course, he did get sent back to jail for riding a scooter. So it's like or a, or a, mo a motorbike. Right. So, yeah. you know, the challenges that people face coming home. It's fixable, by the way. You know, I got to cite this. The University of Chicago Crime Lab, one of the most respected organizations in the country, did a study where they provided job training to people who were coming out of prison in the weeks or months before they left. They paid them $15 an hour. I'm not sure when exactly it started, but it was before they left prison and it continued after they came home for a period of time. And then they studied And what they found was that those people were 90% less likely to shoot anyone else or be shot than the people who didn't participate in this program. And it makes perfect sense. You can't take job training 
if you don't have any money for job training, you have to go find a job, a minimum wage job, whatever you can get in order to eat. If you can't do that, what are you supposed to do? You, these people don't have rich relatives who are going to put them up, 99.9% of them. They don't have a place to turn. So what do they do? They turn back to the streets. And we're like, oh, shit, they're back in prison. Look at this crazy recidivism rate. So it's so easy to fix. It's like, but we instead, as a society, we keep returning to the same failed policies over and over again. And we sit there and scratch our head and go, well, these guys must be career criminals. I don't know. It looks like they're they're unreformable. They're... And it's quite the opposite. I think all, all those people want, and you, of course, Koss, are such an incredible example of it because you had an entrepreneur's mindset from day one and just came out and just made it happen. But not everybody has that. And those people, you know, need, just need, just need a, an opportunity. And you're also, you know, you you helped me with like Second Chance Studios and getting that launch. And that's something that we, we created with Ravi and I, like just paying people to do this apprenticeship and learn. And, and that was the one thing that I really wanted to incorporate is like, yo, you're forcing all these individuals to go to these programs, but like, how are they gonna feed their family? How are they gonna feed themselves? How are they gonna live? You know what I mean? Like get paid while you do it, do some work in between it, and then, you know, get officially hired. So thanks for your help and thanks uh, to Ravi, we got half of our graduating class working at MTB now. So. No, I appreciate that. But one point I wanted to get to was when people are wrongfully convicted. And one thing I, I, you know, I've hired people that have been wrongfully convicted. We could give them all the resources, you know, job training, housing. We could help them out whatever way they can. But I think therapeutically mental illness is a huge issue. I have one individual that, you know, he was wrongfully convicted and he served about 15 years in prison. And now he feels like the whole world is still against him, you know, because he has that mindset of wrongfully convicted. He feels like anybody that turns his back on him or something goes wrong, you know, he feels like the, the system is still after him in some sort of way, you know, have you like dealt with that in some sort of way? Yeah. I mean, look, there's so much mental illness in society these days among people who weren't wrongfully convicted, right? And then imagine going through yeah. that incredible cycle of trauma. It's just unimaginable, you know? So the question is, what are we doing about it? And why aren't we doing more? The resources just aren't there. And the problem is there's a finite amount of resources. The resources are devoted to police and prisons and to the exclusion of all these other programs. And we know that policy doesn't work. We know that it's the greatest social policy disaster in America, at least since slavery. And that in fact, as Michelle Alexander so brilliantly pointed out in the new Jim Crow, it's just a continuation of slavery. It's nothing more or less than that. And so if we want the same results, we should continue doing the same thing. But I don't think anybody wants the same results because it doesn't work. I don't understand why we care so little about our fellow human beings. I don't understand why we have, you know, like my son said to me when he was about 16, he said to me, Dad, you know what, th you know what two words should never be in the same sentence together? I go, what? He goes, homeless veterans. I'm like, yeah. 
you're absolutely right. You get it, right? And both of my kids, I'm so grateful and so proud of them. My daughter teaches as a volunteer in two women's prisons. She used to teach at Rikers. My son is is a great kid, and, and he really gets it. But somehow or other, we've become comfortable with this idea that there's all these people who are unhoused, you know, who are you know, and somehow that they must have deserved it. If we see them on the streets, maybe they, you know, and maybe those people are the same people who are suffering from mental illness, or maybe they're just people that couldn't catch a break. And then, of course, those problems are exacerbated. And then everybody goes crazy when they see a homeless person or a person who is unhoused, I should say, act out in some kind of way. Or they get crazy when they see somebody rob a store. I don't believe anybody grows up wanting to rob stores. You know, like I think that there's I'm not excusing it, but I'm also saying let's look at it a different way. Let's let's take a an approach that actually focuses on solutions that actually helps people and lifts them up and gives them an opportunity to be successful and to be independent. And and you know, it's crazy and I'll I'll stop after this, but <laughs> In Canada, they did this, right? They went to the homeless population there and they tried an experiment where they gave a large number of them 7,500 Canadian dollars, which at that time, I understand it was worth about $5,700 in the United States. And you know what? A year later, what they found, because everybody says, oh, they'll just spend it on drugs and alcohol, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. A year later, they found that like over 70% of them were in permanent stable housing. They were employed and they were doing okay. You know, I'm not saying they were doing great, but they were doing okay. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, and that's the craziest thing. These things are fixable if we focus on solutions. But if we just focus on punishment and repeating the same failed ideas, then we're going to get the same results. What I did want to talk about, too, though, is the cost of incarceration real quick. I forgot to focus on this, but the fact is the New York City Comptroller released a report recently. You guys probably saw it where he said that uh, the cost of keeping somebody at Rikers Island right now is $565,000 a year. It's so crazy. Yeah. You can put them in the Ritz-Carlton on Central Park West (laughs) in in a suite with room service. That's what I always say. You know? Like that's like fifteen hundred dollars a night. Just pay me a salary and I'll stay out of prison, yeah. <laughs> Jason, oh I want to ask you. Crazy. You mentioned the controller. I'm a local city council member. What can I do to help the criminal justice reform, from your perspective, especially to help people who have been wrongfully convicted? Wow. Um, as a city council member, I don't know exactly what your day to day life looks like and how that body, you know, functions. I think it starts with educating your fellow members if they're if they're even open-minded to it. Some people aren't, let's face it. And focusing on creating some of these solutions and getting out of the same mindset that I keep, you know, I keep harping on this, right? And it's gonna take people like you and and your fellow council members to I mean, change has to start locally. The federal government ain't going to save us, right? And state governments are slow to act. Yeah. So we have to do this locally. And, you know, and we have to combat this crazy narrative, right? Where I'm going back to the New York Post, right? It doesn't make the headlines, right? Nobody's putting costs on the cover Mm -hmm. and going, hey, you want to hear some good news? Look at this guy here that everybody thought was like a, 
you know, a, a reprobate, right? A guy that we should all be scared of or be, you know. And here he is, a wildly successful entrepreneur, businessman, and, and doing so much for the community. No, that's not a story, right? The story is somebody pushed somebody in front of a train. Mm-hmm. By the way, that's been going on since I was a little kid in New York. Of course, it's always there's always going to be one person, but that one person and then the media coverage that sells newspapers around that or somebody got shot, you know, like that's a story. And all of a sudden, everybody thinks there's a crime wave. Yep. There isn't a crime wave. There's no, no crime wave. There's just, I keep trying to tell there, people. I, that's what I tell people too. There's, there's a little just cam- uptick. There's cameras now. There's cameras. You yeah. know, it's there's like cameras. That. And by the way, if you wanna, if you wanna do something, fix the street lights in the poorest neighborhoods. That has been proven. Just fixing them. I'm not saying put in new ones. Just fix the ones that are broken. And crime goes down by double digit percentages. Right? Put a little green space. I'm not saying you have to build another version of Central Park in the middle of whatever community you want to pick that's, that's, that's you know, economically disadvantaged, but a little bit of green space. I believe and picking up the garbage off the streets has been proven to reduce violence. You know what it reduces violence? Vendors. I just read this recently. Somebody comes in with a taco stand. It's amazing because it has the effect of people gathering, right? Mm. Lining up to get tacos. And all of a sudden you're talking to your neighbor. You're not shooting each other. You're not, you know, it, 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 it has, there's, there's all these things because my belief is that what causes crime is desperation. It's not complicated. It's desperation. And so if we reduce the amount of desperation, we will reduce the amount of crime. And I Mm. believe everybody at some level wants that. You're definitely like a missionary for this movement. Have you met anyone you couldn't convert, that you couldn't give examples, talk about cases, talk about your personal experience, and they still wouldn't shift? Absolutely. I had that experience yesterday at lunch. I was at lunch with some people yesterday and some just individual was on a rant about his crazy crime wave and they don't feel safe (laughs) and we got to lock everybody up. And I'm like, I'm giving every example under the sun and we can't let people out, you know, on bail or we shouldn't have, you know, like, because I've been a big proponent of bail reform. Mm -hmm. And of course, again, the media, the right wing media goes crazy, right? One guy comes out, doesn't, you know, doesn't have to post bail or whatever it is and commits a new crime. And everybody goes, look at that. This is horrible. Yeah. Right. They can't have got to lock everybody up. I mean, the Quatron Center at the University of Pennsylvania did a study, another study. I'm going to keep throwing studies at everybody. They're probably like, oh, how old was this guy with these studies? But anyway, no, that's good. <laughs> yeah. The University of Pennsylvania did a study, the Quatron School. They did a study where they showed they, they followed groups of people who were arrested for the same crimes. And this one bailed out, and this one went to jail, awaiting trial. And they found that after their release, the people that bailed out, were, or that didn't have to post bail, were 30% less likely to commit a new felony in the ensuing year than the people who went to jail. And it makes sense. If we lock people up before their trial in these horrendous jails where they're subject to disease, violence, brutality, deprivation, where they're away from their home, their family, their school, their church, their kids. 
and then we let them go. Now, all of a sudden, their life, which may have probably was on the margins anyway, they may have lost their home. They may have lost custody of their kids. They yeah. may have lost their job. Your boss doesn't usually wait. Even if you're in for a week, your boss is not going to be like, yeah, yeah that's, all, that's all fine. Would you get arrested <laughs> for turnstile jumping, uh, drinking a beer in the park, whatever it was? Like, yeah, yeah we, we held your job for you. You're straight. No. So now you come out into a world where you really, your problems have multiplied. And what are you going to do? You're going to go to where you got to go to survive. Mm -hmm. And everyone's going to be outraged that you stole something from a store or whatever it is, or, or, you know, worse yet, robbed somebody. And, you know, it never needed to be like that in the first place. Let us not forget that when you're arrested, you're not guilty. You're not, you're innocent until proven guilty. So yeah. Then someone says to me, do you think that if somebody shoots up a school, we should let them out on bail? No. Absolutely. I mean, if you're a real, and of course that's a slippery one because somebody has to be charged with making that decision. Are you a menace to society? Mm-hmm. But we can start with crimes in which no one was hurt and start by not locking those people up before their trial date. And we will see the results will be very, very positive on a, on a ma- micro and a macro level. Do you believe that everyone should have a second chance? Let's say... People who do commit murder? Um, I'm going to say I believe that almost everyone should have a second chance. And, I mean, I'm adamantly opposed to the death penalty in all cases. But I think there are some people, and the, the abolitionists that I know will be horrified that I say this, but I believe there are some people that we need to be safe from that are, um, that are, are really menaces to society. But those numbers are very, very small. And I think that when you dive into those, even those most extreme cases, I'm reading a book by Mark Bookman now called 12 Essays on the Death Penalty, where he profiles 12 different people who were sentenced to death, who who were not innocent, who committed some of the most disgusting, violent, brutal crimes you've ever heard of. I mean, it's horrifying to read these stories. But when you look into their backgrounds and you see the abuse that they suffered as children, and I'm not talking about a little abuse, I'm talking about things that will curdle your blood, that will make you go, how the fuck did nobody step in and stop this? How did nobody save this child from the most terrifying, you know, violence that anybody could ever inflict on on anyone and their children and then you go well you know hurt people hurt people and that doesn't excuse their behavior because some people live through that trauma and come out and somehow or other don't commit violence but in almost every case there's a story inside of the story and i think that there are a lot of people who do deserve a second chance that until you know that side of it you would say no i gotta draw the line here yeah I don't know. I, I feel like people are redeemable, but, you know, I, I think there's definitely that, that psychological person that needs, that, that's in that space, you know, and it's, it's hard to get them out. I went to a solitary confinement unit in Nebraska Correctional Facility, and I went over there and I met the hitman of the Hells Angels. Did 25 years, had about six months left, and some kid called him a punk. And, you know, that word punk in California, he's from California. He, he was like, you know, I went, I visited a whole bunch of prisons across the country and I've been to prisons in California. You don't call people punks here. That's an automatic fight. 
So, you know, there's different politics in Nebraska. Some dude called him a punk six months before, you know, being released. And he said, I had to grab the screwdriver and stab up in the ear. And he killed him. Now he's serving life. My wife was there in the solitary confinement unit with him. He was shackled down. And I was like, I get it. You know, I get this situation that you were in. Other inmates were looking at you. You know, they call you a punk. They're going to try to take advantage of you. But you had six months, bro. You know, and he's like, nah, yeah. you know, you know, you know, the politics and, and individuals like that have that psychological issue from, you know, so much trauma from back in the day or what, you know, whatever they had to deal with. But I believe nobody was born out of the womb, you know, with a knife in their hand, ready to do something bad. I think it was all stuff that we learned in society and experiences. And, and I think you're right. You know, we gotta, we gotta learn these, everybody's story and listen to their stories. I think that a good place to start is by listening to the Wrongful Conviction podcast, because when you hear these stories and you see how easy it is for somebody to get wrongfully convicted and how some of these cases are so extraordinary where you go, it cannot be. There's no way that this could have happened. And we see it in Making a Murderer and we see it in other shows yeah. as well. But, you know, every story is insane. And, and these people need to be heard from. And, the, and we need to shine a light on these awful, awful injustices. No, I appreciate that. No, just, you know, we, we're going to wrap it up here. But uh, I want to definitely know, like, What's the next steps? You know, what's the future plans? Where do you take all the work that you're doing? I know you said you had some plans in the work, you know, like share a little bit about it. This is the first time I'm speaking about this publicly, but what I'm so excited about is that we're getting ready to launch, or maybe by the time this airs, we will have already <laughs> launched a new project called Pandemic of Justice. Mm -hmm. And my goal with this project is that we want to provide a platform for people who want to help with people who need help, who are coming out of the system. We're going to focus initially on people who are coming out who are innocent, um, or even some people who are in who have viable claims of innocence or valid claims of innocence. And how we envision this working is, well, let me backtrack for a second. So I get asked, weekly, sometimes multiple times a week, someone reaches out to me and says, I've been listening to your podcast. I follow you on Instagram, which by the way, my Instagram is it's Jason Flom, ITS Jason Flom and TikTok. People ask me, I want to volunteer. I want to do something. What can I do to help? Well, of course, they always say I want to volunteer at the Innocence Project, but there's only so many slots there, you know, and yeah. we try to, you know, that's not a realistic thing. But of course, that's the organization that they hear the most about. That's the most, mm -hmm. you know, blue chip organization imaginable in this space. But, and I hate that this, this energy, this positive energy, this volunteerism, this sense of outrage is being, you know, underutilized. So with this incredible team made up almost entirely of, of amazing women who are successful in their own right and who are super passionate about this cause, we're going to create this, platform where someone will be able to go on and say, list what their skills are, right? I'm somebody who knows how to build websites. I'm no, I'm somebody who knows how to write a resume. I'm somebody who knows how to mm. uh, do research or teach somebody to cut hair or, you know, even something local. I'm someone who knows how to, you know, do landscaping, mow a lawn, 
provide a car service, anything, right? Because everybody has some skill that they can use, that they, that they can offer. And on the flip side, there'd be people coming out saying, you know, I just came out, like, like you said, cost, right? I just came out. I don't know how to get on Instagram, like something as basic as that. Mm-hmm. Or I don't know how to, you know, to, what are my rights as it relates to trying to get custody of my own children? Or how do I find a psychologist? Or how do I find a dentist? Or how do I, the things that we take for granted, right? People who haven't been through this ordeal are things that can be so challenging that they can actually lead to people going back to prison because they just can't figure it out. How mm-hmm. do I find employment? How do I find a place to live? How do I how do I register to vote? Whatever it might be. And there's so many people, and I'm giving simple examples, but there's so many there's endless other examples that people how do, you know, how do I find a job? And I believe that we are going to create with pandemic of justice a force multiplier where we're going to have people who volunteer who get more almost more out of it than the people that they're helping because i see that time and again and then they're going to go out and proselytize and tell their friends hey i was able to help somebody coming home and you know it was such a great experience for me and then those other people are going to want to help and we're going to I think break down barriers and and open doors that that have been closed for too long. And I'm really excited to be able to be a part of this. And I'm excited to talk to you guys about it first. No, thank you. Thank you for sharing, man. I appreciate that. And that's that's awesome, man. That I think that's extremely needed. As Chris said in the beginning, like learning how to use this uh, touchscreen phone was a issue for me. You know, I went in with a flip phone, came out with a touchscreen phone, had Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You know, I I was operating with MySpace. You know, that's how I started. You know, bagging the girls back in the day. So I appreciate you know maybe even teaching how to dating apps. You know, so but nah, jokes aside. I mean, I appreciate all the work you're doing. Anybody that wants to listen to Jason Flum at Wrongful Conviction, check him out. Thank you, Jason. Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate you, and uh, I hope to see you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Hardest Step. And I'm your host, Koss. And I'm your host, Chris. To hear more stories like this one, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. We drop new episodes every Wednesday. We'll see you next week. Special thanks to our producers, Monica and Moyo. 